Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. You may be seated. Sitting there singing, I was debating. I was like, I should really just call everybody forward. We could, we could get cozy and, 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 you know, there's less people today and the weather and all that. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, I would never do that. I would never move forward. So why would I ask you to do that? <laughs> but we're in the midst of a series, anyway, on the Gospel of John, uh, a series we've been entitling, uh, Jesus Changes Everything. And what's become more and more apparent as we've, we've been walking through this book is that this is a story about how Jesus does just that, about how Jesus changes everything through the cross. Last week we began to see why as we looked at how Jesus changes renewal because what we need isn't just renewal on the surface, but renewal that brings us back to our original state, especially when it comes to our relationship with God. And Jesus does that as a radical Savior who offers us a far more radical renewal by the radical death, his radical death on the cross. There was no other way possible. He had to die in our place, just like the, the snake in the wilderness that Moses planted on top of a pole that, that, that was a picture of what was wrong with the people of Israel long ago. So too, Jesus had to be lifted up as a picture of what's wrong with us so that everybody who looks to Jesus is actually acknowledging their problem, that I should have been up there. That should have been me. In the eyes of God, I was good as crucified. And yet Jesus did it on your behalf. So we started to see how Jesus does this. Jesus changes everything in the cross, at the cross. And we looked at that last week within the story of a man named Nicodemus, who if, if ever there was a guy who could have gotten right with God on his own and, and, and could have done that with, with what he had in him, this was the guy, the top of the top of the top of the religious food chain. But even Nicodemus needed to be born again and therefore needed Jesus to die in his place. Well, this week, we're really just going to fill that out a little more as we look at how Jesus changes restoration. It's not really a different word all that much. It's just a different angle on this, that, that this is about Jesus getting into the grit of life and restoring it from the inside out and, and, and from the bottom up, in a sense. And we're going to see that primarily by looking again at an encounter between Jesus and, and now two other individuals. We're going to be betting down in John chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you can open there. John chapter 4. We're going to again see this primarily, how Jesus changes restoration, similar to how he changes renewal, primarily as we look at Jesus' encounter with two individuals. Again, in John chapter 4. But before we dive in, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, to see that Nicodemus, even Nicodemus, needed to be born again is quite humbling. Because many of us are, not, are so not Nicodemus. But then to see that, that, that you provided for that life through the death of your son, that's not only humbling, but enormously encouraging. And yet many of us, when we look back over the sweep of our lives, when I look back over the sweep of my life, Lord, and even at where we are, where I am today, I'm still struck by how much I'm not a Nicodemus. At least he was trying. And I so often don't. So I pray today as we turn from the, the top of the top of the top of the religious food chain to look at someone who encountered Jesus from somewhere near the bottom. I pray that for the rest of us, the, the, the religious vagabonds and, 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 and vagrants, the religious fakers and frauds, I, I pray for the rest of us, the hypocrites among us, that we would find in Jesus also our renewal and our hope of restoration. In the strong name of the man who waits for us at the well, and heals us from a distance far greater than he did in John chapter 4, I pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to take a little different tact today than I was planning on doing. I'm going to take a little different tact just in order to, to sew together the stories we've been looking at so far. I hope that even in our trek through John thus far in this series, that you're beginning to see a little bit of how these pieces fit together, how one story weaves into the other. Are you seeing that at all? In, in many ways, there's a theme that we've been covering, a theme that we've been, we've been wrapped up in a wedding. Have you seen this? That John the Baptist is the best man, the, 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 the friend of the, of the groom is what he's called what he calls himself. And his job is to not, not be the groom, but to point everybody to the groom, to, to lead the bride to the bridegroom. That's from chapter one. And, and Jesus does prove exactly that, that he is the bridegroom. So when we, when we get to chapter two and Jesus shows up at a wedding in Cana, what is he doing? He's outdoing the bridegroom there. He's proving himself to be the better bridegroom that points forward to a better wedding that is celebrated and made possible by the pouring out of a better wine, a foreshadowing of what he would do on the cross. And then afterwards, he, he leaves that wedding in Cana with his bride, his followers, right? And he goes, just as any ancient Jewish man would go, he goes then to his father's house and shows up at his father's house, the temple in Jerusalem, to once again point to that, that event, that, that crux of this entire gospel, the cross, that he would be a better bridegroom, not only when, when, when the wine was poured out from his own veins, 
but he would be the better bridegroom when he has the temple, the, the, the temple of his father was destroyed only to be raised up again. So that from the very beginning, the, the turning of water into wine, and then at the very end, even the resurrection are two signs pointing in either direction back to the cross. That this is where Jesus proves himself to be the one his people are wedded to. That he is the groom that takes care of the bride and does so by dying on their behalf, like any good bridegroom should. So we've seen this theme being wrapped up, this wedding theme wrapped up in these stories as we've trekked through the gospel so far. And last week didn't break from that theme, it actually just expanded it. So we talked a lot about birth, which is the thing that comes after the marriage, right? We talked about the new birth and what it means to be born again. That's why that's in there, it's woven together. But it's also about how Jesus is the bridegroom to those Jewish people. You remember Nicodemus from last week, Nicodemus is a Jew. Well, today, as we look, as we turn from renewal to restoration, we're going to turn also from the Jews to another people group, to the people group of the Samaritans first, and then finally to the ends of the earth. So we're just seeing how, how Jesus being the bridegroom is not just for this one little nation under God, indivisible, with justice and liberty. We're seeing that this is something for the whole world. We're going to do that again as we turn to, to John chapter 4. I want to do that, though, by coming back to the question I posed last week. Why the cross? Why the cross? Why is the cross so significant? What does it accomplish on our behalf? And what is different after the cross than before? Because I remember my life before the cross had any part in it. And it wasn't any good. So what's so different now that the cross is a part of my life that wasn't the same back then? Because I remember time and time and time again failing before God. I was one of those people. I wanted to follow God and didn't. I crashed and burned too many times to count. You might be on the other side of the divide that eventually just gives up, right? But either way, we're the same, not following God the way we should. So what's the difference with the cross? What does the cross do? And I want to divide this into to, to, to three things. To say it does, it accomplishes three things. First, it deals with the presence of sin. It deals with the presence of sin. This actually, though, was last week's sermon. It deals with the presence of sin. So if you remember back at what we saw with Nicodemus, you can see how the cross is, is worked out for Nicodemus as something that, that takes care of our rebellion against God. That not everything was right for Nicodemus to begin with. That even though he was trying to keep up a relationship with God, he didn't realize that he didn't have a relationship with God because that relationship had already been severed because all of us begin, all of us began rebelling against God. 
Somebody needs to take care of it. And that's what Jesus did. Like a snake on a pole. As the image of what's wrong with us. Dealing with the presence of sin. Now as we get into John chapter 4, what I want to suggest is that the cross accomplishes two further things. It first deals with the presence of sin. Second, it deals with the power of sin. And third, deals with the, where did my third P go? We'll get there. Deals with the presence of sin. Nicodemus. Second, it deals with, this is going to, so I had my notes over there. I'll tell you a story. I had my notes over there and Lydia was playing next to them. (laughs) They're in here somewhere though. Here it is. Deals with the power of sin, deals with the presence of sin, presence of sin, power of sin, deals with the punishment of sin. (laughs) Okay, so deals with the presence of sin in Nicodemus. Deals with the power of sin in the woman at the well. Let's get into this story. It begins in chapter 4, verse 1. And let me just walk you through it, because it's a rather fascinating story. It says in chapter 4, verse 1, now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, probably from Nicodemus, the Pharisee that we met last chapter. When the Pharisees heard this and Jesus learned of it, although Jesus himself, it says, did not baptize, but only his disciples did, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. That's not a throwaway sentence. Just look at it for a minute. He had to pass through Samaria because that's not actually entirely true. He didn't have to pass it, at least as you would think. Now, he did, Samaria, to go to go up north to, to um, Galilee from Jerusalem, you did technically have to go through Samaria if you were going to take a straight shot up the River Jordan. But there were people, even in Jesus' day, some of his own countrymen, who found it quite possible to not go, go through Samaria by jumping the Jordan, going up the other side, and then back into Galilee because they hated the Samaritans. They didn't want to go through Samaria. They didn't like to go through Samaria because they hated the Samaritans. So when it says Jesus had to go through Samaria, it's not talking geography. It's not talking about about just the positioning of Samaria between Jerusalem in the south and and, and Galilee in the north. It's talking about something more. It's saying that Jesus had an appointment. And so he has to go through Samaria. Verse 4, it says that he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour, noon or so, the hottest time during the day, which was not the time during the day you would ever show up at a well. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria, though, came 
to draw water, even though this wasn't the time of day that you would ever show up to draw water. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and and something was up, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman's a little taken back by this. She knows how Jews feel about Samaritans, so she asks him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, Jesus answered her. I was just getting the conversation going. If you knew the gift of God, who, who it is that, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and, and he would have given you living water. Not, not the stale water from a well, but the living water of a spring. The woman said to him, Sir, you, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep, a hundred feet at least, maybe more. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, no, you don't get it. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But everyone, whoever drinks of the water that I give him, will never be thirsty again. Because the water that I will give him will become in him a a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Not just something you got to go with your pail, your leaky bucket, and go, go pitch out of the well again and again and again. But something that satisfies like you've never been satisfied before. Now again, this woman at this well is there at a time of day that she shouldn't be there. It's hot out. It's really hot out. It's hotter than it's out outside right now. And she shouldn't be at this well getting water. It's just not what you did. And not only was it hot, she shouldn't be there because if she goes in the middle of the day, she goes alone. And things happen at wells when you go alone. You weren't supposed to go alone, especially as a woman. If you, if you read back and look actually at the history of this well and how it was established, when, when Jacob actually bought the land on which this well was dug, it was there. The next sentence is his daughter, Dinah, going off alone and being mishandled by a man because she was alone. You didn't do that. You didn't go to a well in the middle of the day, not just because of the heat, but because you would have been alone unless you got nothing left to lose. Unless there's nothing left to hang on to in life. Unless there's, you've come face to face with the lack of satisfaction that life provides. And it just didn't matter anymore. So she shows up, gets into this conversation, and he promises her this thing called eternal life. But she doesn't take it like he means it, does she? 
He's not, she's not really worried. She probably doesn't even understand what he's talking about, this thing called eternal life. But she's really concerned with not having to come to this well again. So she says in verse 15, she says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water anymore. Because she doesn't want to trot down Main Street anymore on her way to the well. She doesn't want to be under the microscope anymore. She doesn't want to be under everybody's radar whether she's going here in the middle of the day or not. Well, Jesus really cuts to the bottom of this just like he usually does. When he says in verse 16, go call your husband and then come here. Well, the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus says back, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband at all. See, this is the reason she was coming to the well in the middle of the day. This is the reason she wouldn't, she wouldn't go with, with the other women of the town, because she wanted to avoid the stares. She wanted to avoid the whispers. She was an outcast. She wasn't like Nicodemus, the, the, the top of the top of the top of the religious food chain. She was a bottom feeder. She was a rule breaker, not a rule follower. And she had actually gotten to a point of just giving up. So go call your husband. I have no husband. You're right. You've had five. And, and we're not told whether, whether she just had bad luck and she just picked five guys who were rather unhealthy and they just gave up the ghost at some point. And then, and then the, the, the sixth guy just didn't want to buy in, right? Or whether this was, this was the, something very different and, and she, had just, she had just married five guys who eventually walked away or, or probably more so sent her walking. And the sixth guy, she was just looking for someone to have, someone to hold whether he was willing to commit to her or not. We're not told, all we're, to, all, all we're told, all the, the only picture we're given is that she's living a life of utter dissatisfaction. Five is even a big number in our standards. And, and we live in a very different time. Five was a whole lot in her life. All we're told is this, this woman passing from, from one man to the next, breaking one rule after the next, one lack of faithfulness to her or on her part towards others is, is the power of sin in this woman's life is as much as we've ever known. This is the bottom, the bottom of the pits. And we look at Nicodemus and I look at Nicodemus and I hear it. I'm humbled. I'm encouraged. Even Nicodemus needs to be saved. But I know that I'm not a Nicodemus. I know most of my life I've spent as a bottom feeder, as a rule breaker. In the, the covert crevices of life where no one can see, where no one knows, no one can find out, my 
anger issues, my, my lust for power issues, my, my desire, even in marriage, to be first. I know what that's like. So I relate to this. A woman who just can never find satisfaction in what she's going after. And so she does what I think any one of us would do, right? What does she do? She changes the subject. So she's in the middle of this conversation. Jesus says, go get your husband. She says, I have none. He says, you're right, that's true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You have no husband, you're right, you have had five and the guy you're with now, I know about him too. I perceive you are a prophet. Sort of like walking into the White House and saying, I perceive you are the president, Mr. President. He says, what gave it away? The haircut? Or is it that I'm sitting behind the Oval Office? Right? I perceive that you're a prophet, at least a prophet. And so she says, our fathers, right? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. This is the main contention between the Jews and the Samaritans. Well, which one is it? She does what any one of us would do when things get too personal. Have you been there? Have things gotten too personal? Now, this can happen with somebody else. I remember I was a very awkward dater when I was a kid. Now, I grew up public school. I know I didn't have the values. So I dated quite a bit. And I was really awkward. So things got personal a lot. And by personal, it was like, what was your favorite color? And so he changed the, changed the conversation, changed the subject a lot. But things get personal more with God. And so you get to this point in life where, where things get personal. And your habit, your tendency, if you're anything like the woman at the well, anything like me, is going to be to change the subject, especially if you're a guy. I think, I think part of the reason this story is in here is, is, is to show us guys that, that when, when, when things go with God, things get personal, right? And I think it's also here to show us that we're not the only one guys who, who buck the issue when things get personal. Uh, women do it just as much. I think that's why it's in here. And yet Jesus, for his part, he's not thrown by this. He doesn't say, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I asked you a question. I told you to go get somebody. We're on this subject of your husband. Why are you turning to worship, right? He doesn't do that, right? Why? Because at the end of the day, the power of sin that Jesus deals with is an issue of worship. The power of sin in your life is a matter of worship. It's a matter of what you're running after. It's a matter of where you're headed, what you're looking to, where you're trying to find love in all the wrong places. It's an issue of the affections. And so he says, you want to talk about worship? We could talk about worship. He says to the woman, says, woman, believe me, 
The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know as a Samaritan. You don't have the books we have. You don't have God's revelation. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, Jesus says, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Not in a temple. Not in the physical place anymore. Whether it's that mountain in Jerusalem or this one in Samaria. The day is coming when they will worship in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking those worshipers. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, which aren't two separate things, but one and the same. That you worship, we must worship. You have to worship God if you're going to worship at all in spirit, by the spirit of God and by truth which is really just a way of saying the word. By spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. So that last week where, where all of the, the talk with Nicodemus was about the water, the water, the washing of the sins. Now it's all about the spirit. Picking up on that same phrase of Jesus, you must be born to see, to enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again, born of water to be washed and of the Spirit to be renewed. So that those verses that we read last week in Ezekiel are, are, are no less pertinent here in this context, that it has to be a work of God. That in, in Ezekiel 36, he says, I will wash you clean. I will do it with a water that you don't have access to otherwise. I will wash you clean and I will give you a spirit so that you can follow my rules like you never could before, whether you were a rule follower or you were a rule breaker. Because without me, you are under the power of sin. And I don't know what it is. I don't know what Jesus would say to you of what he would go and tell you to go get. Go get your calendar so I can see how you're spending your time. Go get your account so I can see what you're doing with your money. Go pull up the history on your browser so we can see where you've been. And you say, I have no history. That's right, you used to, but you delete it. Because this is real. I don't know what it would be for you. But unless the cross becomes the center of life and ever is the center of life, you will live under the power of sin. And it's only by grace that any of us don't. Jesus says this is about your affections. This is about worship. This is about what you go after, what you serve, what you ultimately look to that will serve you. And if you don't worship Jesus, you live under the power of sin. But the cross breaks it. She doesn't know it at that moment. She says to him in 
in very much the same confused voice. I, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. To which Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. The one who not only tells you all things, just like John the Baptist said, the one who has seen, who has heard, who, who came down from heaven, who's the only one who can tell us what brings us back, who not only tells us whose, whose witness we ought to listen to, but who actually goes one step farther and is the one who accomplishes them. Jesus breaks the, the presence of sin. He deals with the presence of sin. We saw that in Nicodemus. He, he deals here in this story of the woman at the well with the power of sin. Come back to how it ends, but, but I just want you to skip forward because when he leaves here, when he finally leaves Samaria, he goes and deals with the punishment of sin shows how the cross deals with the punishment of sin. If you skipped forward to, to verse 46, you can see this. So he came, Jesus came after he left, after he left Galilee. He came again to, after he left Samaria, he came again to Cana in Galilee. And remember, this is where he began, the wedding at Cana. So he's back again to conclude this, this first chunk of the, of the Gospel of John. He came again to Canaan, Galilee, where, where he had made water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. It's a town a, a little ways away. When this man heard that, that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. A very similar issue that Nicodemus had. Unless you see signs, you will not believe. To which the official says, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed, though, that moment, the word that Jesus spoke to him went away. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at around the seventh hour, the fever left. And the father knew that it was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, all his household with him. And that was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Jesus deals with the presence of sin in the cross to wash it away. Jesus deals with the punishment of sin, to, to the power of sin, to break it in the cross. He, here, Jesus deals with the punishment of sin, death itself. Not because he went around in his life healing everyone. You ever wonder why Jesus didn't do that? You had the power to do it. There was a lot of other kids in the ancient world dying, people keeling over. Why not just go around and heal them all? You could have done it, Jesus. You could have done it. 
because this wasn't what he was about. He wasn't just bringing people back into this broken life. He was going to the cross to make life worth living for forever. Because he was the only one who could do it. To deal with death. The presence, the power, the punishment of sin, which so wreaks havoc in our lives. And it's only in the cross that it's dealt with. If you were to turn back, it's interesting, this woman at the well, how the story unfolds, though. It's not just for her, right? What does she do as soon as, as, soon as she realizes this is the guy who not only says it, but does it, accomplishes it on my behalf? What does she do? She runs back to her own town, who she could do nothing but avoid before this. And yet she's completely freed from whatever stigma they would place on her. She runs back and says to them, could this be, come see the man who told me all that I've ever done and it's okay, it's okay, it doesn't matter. Could this be the Christ? I was reading a book this week. We, Emmett and I and um, Aletheia opened up a book and we were reading it and then the first page was the, the, the dedication. The guy dedicated it to his wife. He said, to the one who knows me and still loves me just as I am. Come see the man who's told me everything I ever did. But it's okay. Could this be the Christ? And Jesus turns to his disciples who are a little confused of why this guy's, why their, their rabbi is talking to this woman, let alone this woman of Samaria. And he says, stop worrying about it. This is about the harvest. This is about the harvest being white, ready to be reaped. I'm sending you to, 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 to harvest what you didn't sow. Because if you know Jesus and you know that he's, he's dealt with the, the presence of sin and he's dealt with the, with the power of sin and he's dealt with the, the punishment of sin in your life, that's where you go. But I want to end by saying this, that Jesus just doesn't send. He doesn't just send those who, are, who, who come into contact with the cross, to whom the, the cross becomes the centerpiece of your, their lives. He goes himself. That's what this, these stories really are. It's the bridegroom going to collect his bride, going first to Judea, to his own people, from Jerusalem to the Jew, Nicodemus, from Judea going to Samaria to go get the half-breeds, the, the, the ones who were corrupted under the foreign influence, under the foreign occupation, to go win back a people that was once his and hadn't been since the, the division of a kingdom long ago. From Judea to Samaria. Eventually to the ends of the earth, to a man who had no right to be part of the people of God, no lineage whatsoever, couldn't find it in an archive if he digged his entire life and yet brought to that man the healing of his son. So that the, the mission that 
Jesus' people are set off on is a mission Jesus did long before we ever got to. I don't know who has um, jumped on the, the, the home renovation bandwagon since the, the debut of the HGTV's hit show, Fixer Upper. But Catherine and I are there. We are, we are on the, the home renovation bandwagon. Are you there? Is anybody disappointed that season five is it? I don't know what we're going to do. What, what you binge after Fixer Upper? We've jumped on the home renovation bandwagon, but it's interesting that, that Chip and Joanna, right, as much as you, you watch this couple that now has become household names across America, you watch this couple, and, and they're not always at their best, not because of themselves, but because they don't always have a project that, that, that displays their giftedness as a home renovation couple. You know what I mean? Usually, they walk into a place, and there's stuff to do, but, but the list becomes pretty repetitive. Scrape off the popcorn ceiling, put a little crown molding up, uh, replace the kitchen countertops, and the backsplash. If you're lucky, you rip up that, that dated carpet, you find hardwood floors, and maybe the drywall comes off and there's shiplap. It becomes very very rote, right? That's like every episode. But every once in a while, they get into a house that they need to tear down to the very foundation. Foundation's broken. The walls are rotted out. The ceiling is about to cave in. That's a fixer-upper. And yet the beauty of the show is that when things are at their worst and you're wondering, what are they going to do with that? Those are the moments this couple really shines. Their giftedness as a, as a home renovation couple really comes out. Not many of us are Nicodemus follow the rules long enough, figure you can't follow them any longer, you eventually start breaking them. At least that's my life. I often look at my life, did look at my life before Jesus kept coming in, before Jesus took center stage. I thought of my life as, what on earth are you going to do with this? The foundation is, is cracked and and, and, and wasting away. The walls are, 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 are rotten and, and, and just breaking apart. The ceiling's already caving in in places. What are you going to do with this? Where the presence and power and punishment of sin are so real, yet it's moments like that that Jesus shines for all he's worth. And he proves himself to be that bridegroom who comes in and can make that house what it was meant to be. Not just renewing it, making it what it was meant to be once. Sort of starting from scratch in a sense. But actually picking up the pieces and making something out of it that it never would have been elsewise. And he does it with all of us.
could do it for you, he's done it for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are real, real pieces of life. The presence of sin guts us. Power of sin entraps us. The punishment of sin is something we deal with and stare at all our life long. And yet it's something that you so graciously dealt with in the cross that you sent Jesus to so graciously deal with on our behalf. I pray that even as we, we look forward to celebrating Easter in a couple weeks, month or so, that even now we would be remembering what you did on our behalf to take care of that when we couldn't do it for ourselves. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.